Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. And I'm joined this week by my colleague, Martin O'Connell, who's Deputy Research Director at the IFS, and by Ian Crawford, who's Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford, as well as a fellow at the IFS. And this week, we're going to talk about something which we hear an awful lot about, though we don't necessarily all understand exactly what it means, and that's inflation. What's been happening to prices? How do we measure it? And what might have happened over the last um, nine months of this pandemic? How do we think about inflation in a world in which quite a lot of the things that we normally buy, we can't buy? So perhaps let, let's start, though, with, uh, with with the absolute basics, in a sense. Although as soon as you get into the basics, it starts to get quite complicated. So I'm going to ask Ian first what, what, what it is that we mean by inflation. When the inflation numbers come up on the telly on the 10 o'clock news uh, and uh, Faisal Islam, whoever it is, tells us that uh, CPI inflation this week is, well, this month is 1%. Um, what, what, what do we mean? What, what, what do we mean by that? What is that actually measuring? Essentially, what they're measuring is the average rate of increase of prices. Um, and, you know, there are various ways of doing it. But notionally, the idea is that we go out and we price a, this famous basket of goods. And then we go out the next month and price the same basket of goods and compare the, the, the price of buying that thing over time. And every once in a while, we have a look at this basket and think, uh, well, some of this stuff looks a bit out of date. And uh, let's, let's, let's put some new things in the basket and chuck a few things out. Uh, but that's the general process uh, that we go through, uh, at least in the UK, and probably in most Eurostat countries. That all sounds very straightforward. Um, it's not quite that straightforward, though, is it? Um, no, keeping a track of the basket is, um, is a difficult thing. Um, it's it's hard for the Office for National Statistics to do it. Um, they, they 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 sort of they use something called the Living Cost and Food Survey largely to sort of figure out what it is that people buy, but that's um, that's a big national survey of spending habits, and it's um, but it takes a while to collect. By the time they get it in to Newport or wherever they do the analysis. You know, it's a it's a little bit out of date, um, and so it's it's not so easy to um, to keep the um, to keep the the basket up to date. And in fact, it's not so easy to keep the prices up to date either, because um, when they go to the shops, and this is sort of particularly COVID related, they have to find the thing that was on sale last month. Now, if somebody's come in and bought all the loo roll, it's pretty hard to find the price of loo roll. And um, I, I think that's one of the things that. IFS itself has been looking at recently. Indeed, and Martin, you've been um, you've been looking at what might have happened to prices at the onset of this crisis. We know that um, people were rushing to the supermarkets to buy all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. Um, and whilst the headline inflation numbers didn't seem to go up very much, I think you found that some things were happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've been using a large um, nationally representative data set that tracks around 30,000 UK households. Um, and these households are recording essentially everything that they buy from supermarkets and convenience stores. So we know exactly what they buy and the prices that they've paid. And we've been using these data to look at what's happened to inflation in the grocery sector. And we found that 
in the first month of the first national lockdown, there was a spike in inflation for grocery products of 2.5%. Um, and this is something which is really quite stark. It's more inflation than we typically get in an entire year for these products. We found that one of the primary drivers for this increase in prices was a reduction in the number of promotions that were available, so supermarkets cutting back and price promotions and quantity promotions. Um, and this is one thing that's um, not fully reflected in official uh, Office for National Statistics numbers, and it may explain um, in part why that didn't show up in the official measures. So that's, uh, I mean, that I think that might come as a bit of a surprise, surprise to some people, is that uh, if you... Um if supermarkets were selling things on a sale, two two for one, two 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 cans of beans for the price of one, and then they stop, and that in a sense has doubled the cost of a price of beans, of a can of beans. But that's um, that's not reflected at all in the statistics, is it? No, that's exactly right. So these kind of quantity discounts where the price is less if you buy more. So, for instance, two for the price of one isn't reflected at all in the official measures, but it is reflected in the, the data set that we are using to cover grocery inflation over the pandemic. So, Ian, you've spent quite a lot of time advising the ONS on these sorts of things. I mean, what? Uh, what Don't blame what, what, me. <laughs> <laughs> not, not blaming you. Um, what? Uh, What's the what's the reason for what what feels like slight oddities like uh, like that that um, some of these promotions at least aren't reflected in in, in the official statistics? Well, I, I, honestly, I can't speak for ONS on the on the topic, um, but uh, there is a there is a bit of a problem, kind of a, a slight conceptual problem, I think, at the heart of all of this sort of stuff is that the way we think about measuring inflation is we think about a product having a well-defined price. So if you want to go and buy one of those things on that shelf over there, it costs you that much. But I think in reality, retailers are a lot more sophisticated that there isn't such a thing as a, a constant price for a product. The prices are, they depend upon how much of something you buy. So the, these discounts that you're talking about, they also depend upon the composition of the things that you buy you know if you buy this item you might get another item half price or discounted so that's a sort of compositional thing uh, and that's on top of this buy one get one free so products don't really in in real world um, products the notion of a price is a, is a lot more complex than the way we normally think about it when we think about inflation um, and it's not just ONS. Um, you know, academics as well have not really addressed, um, in fact, to the best of my knowledge, found a good way of measuring inflation when prices are complicated functions of the things we buy rather than just sort of single numbers associated with, with individual products. It makes it a lot more tricky. So, for example, if you think about um, bulk discounting, then the price you pay per unit depends upon how many units you buy. And so if you, if you, in your mind's eye, you were to draw that out, you would have this kind of, you know, vertical axis, the price, uh, and then on the unit price, and then on the horizontal axis, the, the quantity, and it would be a downward sloping function. And um, that function could stay exactly where it is. No change in how the, how the shop is giving you discounts. But if, if people just start buying a different quantity, then the unit price is going to change. 
and that'll show up as a change in the rate of inflation. But it won't really be a change in the rate of inflation in the sense that that, 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 that price quantity schedule, the way they price these things, hasn't changed at all. It's just where people are locating on it. And I don't think that at the moment, I mean, Martin will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I don't think at the moment that we've got a good theory of how you measure inflation when, when prices are complicated. There you go. That was my best shot at it. <laughs> that's uh, that's ki- it's kind of depressing, isn't it? I mean, we think that when, when we think about economics, I think inflation is we're one of the most basic building blocks uh, of um, you know people's understanding of the economy and economics, and you're all sitting there telling us it's all too difficult. Ah, just standard operating procedure for an academic. You take something that's kind of simple and appealing, and you render it you know off-putting and complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Well, perhaps we should um, sort of then backpedal a, 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 a little, Martin, and um, think about what it is that um, we're actually trying to measure. Because we started off with um, you know, Ian sort of telling us that, they, you know, that, that, that at one level it's quite straightforward. We're just trying to measure the increase in prices. But it's not quite that simple, is it? I mean, just take us through what it is that it, you know, we are actually trying to get hold of when we're measuring inflation. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. Um, at a simple level, inflation can be inflation rates can be seen as a statistical measure of the um, increase in the costs of some representative basket of goods and services. And indeed, that's how the ONS defines it. Consumer price inflation um, is the rate at which the prices of goods and services um, bought by households rise or fall. But often when economists think about inflation, they're thinking about a slightly deeper concept. They're really interested in what the measure is in the change in the cost of living. So that's the amount of additional spending that people um, require to do in order to keep their living standards at a constant level. And there's lots of differences in the mathematical formula used to uh, compute inflations and really what formula and how good the data we have um, helps influence how good an approximation the measure is of this underlying change in the cost of living. And then part, part of the difficulty here, isn't it, is that, you know, you've got lots and lots of households. You've got whatever it is, 30 million households in the country all buying different things. Um, and to get one number measuring inflation, you need to take account of what all of those households are are buying, um, and there might be some goods that get you know treble in price, but if hardly anyone's buying them, you don't want to have that have a big effect on uh, inflation. But um, but equally, if uh, if if there's lots of things that are moving up in price a bit, some people might stop buying them and buy something very similar which hasn't gone up in price. So there's all sorts of different ways of thinking about what inflation is trying to measure. And you, Martin, you you raise this difference between price increases or increases in prices and what we think of as the cost of living, which is a different thing. I mean, often in normal conversation, one talks about inflation as a change in the cost of living. I mean, that's um, uh, when you're thinking about um, how much uh, people want their salaries to rise by, they say, well, we want something to reflect an increase in the cost of living. But actually, that's, that's something different from what inflation is actually Measuring and I mean, Ian, you've thought about that a lot. I know um, this difference between an increase in the cost of living and an increase in prices. Yeah, I, uh, perhaps one way to think about it is uh, if you go back to a fixed basket of goods, the, the fixed basket of goods is fixed. There's only one way to buy it. But 
with cost of living, there's lots of different ways of living, and you can you can substitute between them. So you can swap away from things that have become relatively expensive towards things that have become relatively cheap, um, or your tastes could change, I suppose. Um, and um, you could do that and still, in an economic sense, be um, as well off as you were before. And so, yeah, this this idea of cost of living is a more slippery concept. But what it really is, I think, at heart, is it allows for this ability to change your behavior in response to the environment. And that's what that concept allows, um, this substitution between between different goods, you know, as they get more or less expensive relative to everything else, whereas your sort of classic fixed basket of goods inflation measure um, doesn't do that. And that's one of the main differences. Yeah, I, I think it, it's um, important to note that there are some measures of inflation that do seek to get at this idea of changes in the cost of living. And typically the way that they do this is use information on the basket of goods that people are buying at the moment as well as the basket that they initially bought in the period that they're making comparisons between. Now, because the ONS measure uses historic data from the Living Cost and Food Survey that Ian previously talked about, they're not not able to do this. They're not able to use up-to-date information and consumer spending patterns. In contrast, the data that we're using to monitor grocery inflation over the over the pandemic, well, a key advantage of it is it contains real-time information and spending patterns. So that, in fact, allows us to try to build inflation measures which approximate changes in, well, at least the cost of living for associated with that grocery basket. And what about new new things? I mean, one of the things I find quite uh, difficult to uh, understand when I'm thinking about inflation is that, you know, today... I can go out and buy an iPhone or Netflix or whatever other product I might want to advertise at the moment, um, which 10 years ago I couldn't go out uh, and and buy. Um, uh, And in some sense, that makes me better off because I can buy it. Uh, But how does that appear or does does that appear in inflation numbers at all? I mean, particularly in this sense of, the cost of living. I mean, you can't really think of a cost of living, can you, when what you can buy has changed so really dramatically. And if we're looking over a sort of 30 or 40 year period and we're comparing living standards today with living standards 30 or 40 years ago, and we look at inflation over the last 30 or 40 years and say, well, look, after inflation, average earnings today are twice what they were 30, 40 years ago, does that really mean living standards are twice as high or might they be even more than twice as high given that we can do all sorts of other things with our money? It's a, um, this kind of new goods issue is, is um, it's, it's a problem that people since Keynes and even before have understood. Um, Keynes used to talk about, well, you know, how can we compare you know, the modern convenience of being able to go to the cinema compared with being able to go and watch gladiators, two different forms of, of entertainment. Um, but gladiators, you know, shouldn't shouldn't be in the basket for the CPI these days. Whereas, <laughs> well, actually, under lockdown, probably cinema tickets aren't either, but Netflix subscriptions, shall we say, um, in, instead. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. So there's a very sort of straightforward... Um, fix, which is to update the basket quite regularly. 
which is what we do in the UK. We update the basket um, every year. Okay, it's a little bit out of date when we when we use it, and it's absolutely not this kind of up to the minute um, type of real time data that Martin's been studying. But it does mean that we don't still have gladiator belts in the in the CPI. Um, what that means is that you you get a you get a fixed basket, but it, it's only fixed for a year. And then what you do is you take these sort of annual one-year inflation measures, and then you sort of, what well, in the lingo of price statistics, you chain them, which means you multiply them together. So you look at inflation over the course of 2017 to 18, and then 18 to 19, and you multiply the two things together so that you can track it through from 17 to 19, for example. And that's the way, uh, in practice, we handle it. I just want to just press you a bit more on that you, you can see how you put new things in a basket of goods each year um and how those things might change but i think I, but i does that get round this question i was asking about how you compare so you've got this inflation measure over 20 years but now you can buy iphones and 20 years ago you couldn't buy iphones i mean does that updating of the basket get round that problem if what i'm trying to measure is some get some idea of how much better off or, or not I am than 20 years ago. If I'm comparing, you know, my salary now with my salary 20 years ago, and I look at the inflation rate and it looks like my salary has doubled after inflation, but am I, am I actually better off than it appears? I think it doesn't get around that problem fundamentally. It makes it a bit more palatable. Um, but uh, Martin might disagree with me, but what happens is we – the way we measure inflation is subject to continual change. You know, going back to whenever it was first introduced, which I think was just after the Second World War. Is it 1947? You'll remember, Paul. I'm not that old. Uh, <laughs> you were probably already working at the IFS at that stage. <laughs> um, and, and, and what's in the basket and what's being measured and the way in which we're measuring it is utterly different now from what it was then. And, and you know, by dint of this annual process of rebasing and changing the basket, year-to-year changes are quite small. Um, and so, yeah, we look back last year or a couple of years, yeah, it's pretty good, I would imagine. You go back 20 years or, you know, 80 years, um, it's it's not really comparable um, because of this accretion of, um, you know, lots of small, individually ignorable changes. Um, which are kind of okay in the short run, but when you look over it a long period, you know, this this thing is just not the same animal that it was back then. Um, and you're right to point it out. It's I personally think, certainly in macroeconomics, they completely ignore the fact that inflation dynamics, you know, half of those inflation dynamics to do with measurement, probably more. Uh, an unspecified proportion of those inflation dynamics are to do with the fact that this thing's just not the same. Um, the philosophers, as you will always appreciate, have a word for this, and they call it the Sorites paradox. And it's uh, it's the notion of how it relates to the notion of how a bunch of small changes, every single one of them is negligible, can end up making a whacking great big difference. And in this case, making the CPI not comparable with what it was twenty years ago or thirty years ago. Um, so, so that's my you know strictest view on it. I would say. 
So psoriasis is this thing where once you, you keep adding grains of sand, and what point do you have a heap and what point did you not have a heap? Or... Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah. You can't turn something that's not a heap into a heap by adding one grain of sand. That's the premise. And so you add, you've got something that's not a heap, heap, you, you add a grain of sand, it's not a heap. Another grain of sand, still not a heap. Pretty soon you've got this mountain of sand and you say, no, that's not a heap. <laughs> Even as it crushes you, <laughs> it's all avalanche. <laughs> so have you, have you any thought on, the, on, on, on this, Martin, on, the, um, on, on this issue of uh, inflation as a measure over a period of time? Well, I mean, I think um, I, I don't uh, disagree with any of Ian's comments, surprisingly. I guess I have a, a, a related but slightly different point. Um, one thing that came out of our IFS work over the over the pandemic is that when lockdown started on the 23rd of March, there was a reduction of about 10% in products that are available in supermarkets and convenience stores. Um, now, this isn't quite as exciting as thinking about how we value gladiators, but conceptually the problem's similar. Now, if we go to buy, you know, say we look for an Italian ready meal, the set of those that are available to us is, is smaller than the, the set of ready meals that were available prior to the pandemic. Um, and that does potentially contribute into changes in people's cost of living because those who favoured the now missing products are having to choose uh, alternatives that they, they favour less. Um, and how we think about dealing with that is is actually similar conceptually to Ian's gladiator point, with the exception, though, that we may actually have some ability to estimate how much consumers um, now how much consumers value the removed product because in the relatively recent past we've seen them making decisions over these these uh, products that currently aren't available and it's a bit more than um you know different ready meals isn't it i mean we've been through periods where we can't buy a pint of beer in a pub you know to see where i'm coming from in terms of my priorities <laughs> um or indeed uh you know a, a, a holiday abroad or um uh, or a restaurant meal. I mean, they're quite large bits of spe- expenditure that haven't been possible. Um, and my understanding is that the, you know, in, in, in terms of that, the official inflation figures have essentially assumed that the prices of those go up in line with all of the things that have been available. But clearly, again, that's moving a long way from this idea that this is measuring any anything which is getting at a cost of living or a standard of living. Well, that's... that's uh... That's right. Uh, that uh, that is my understanding as well of what they did was you know in it's it's a little bit like saying that well the things that are no longer available are just like the things that were available, and you know that that is an assumption which will allow you to deliver each month a measure of the rate of inflation, um, but it gets less tenable the more stuff is missing. I mean you've heard of these things where you have a price index with one thing in it, typically a Big Mac, right? You've heard of the Big Mac index? That's the thing that allows you to compare standards across countries. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there is a, there is an assumption under which the, the Big Mac index is exactly right. It's when, you know, the price of Big Mac moves exactly like everything else in the economy. And then, then it's spot on. Um, and that in, that's a sort of a reductio ad absurdum way of, of uh, thinking about what what statistical agencies have been doing in the pandemic. They've been saying, well, let's just ignore this, the stuff that's that's hard to find on the shelves and assume that it's, its price is moving in the same way as everything else. 
Well, it's um, I mean, it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? That um, this really gets at the heart of how we don't have data to measure standard of living, because we normally think of you know we normally think as a you know we think you know, look at incomes how they've changed over time. Compare that to how prices have changed over time, and if incomes have gone up faster than prices, we think standard of living's gone up. Um, and we have this kind of extraordinary period over part of this year, where for most people their incomes have not gone down. For most people, um, and uh, the price prices haven't gone up very much, and so their living standards haven't fallen on all of these economic measures. Whereas clearly their living standards have fallen enormously um, because they just can't do the things that they want to do and i think you know we we don't have a good measure of that do we we don't we, we when when it comes in you know 30 years time to look back at the economic history of this period we won't see uh this fall in in, in living standards that you might have expected to see well I, I, that's probably true um and and going back to you know i alluded there's there's a right way to do this where you work out you know what would somebody what would you paul be prepared to pay for a nice pound of pint of brown beer in a pub at the moment um and and we try to work out your willingness to pay for this and then use that uh, as a price that idea you'll be entirely unsurprised to find out goes back to um, at least the second world war where they were trying to figure out the how to work out the national accounts under situations of rationing when you know stuff wasn't available and we needed a system of national accounts where you could make year-to-year comparisons where availability was was being, um, you know, hugely affected. Um, and so the methods that Martin and IFS have been using recently are essentially the methods that were invented by John Hicks in 1941 to deal with, with, with rationing. It's just um, Martin's using them. Um, ONS isn't. <laughs> So, Martin, did you know you were following in the footsteps of John Hicks? Uh, I no, actually. So that's a valuable economic history lesson for me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're, we're we're learning we're learning immense amounts here, Ian. Um, we, we we've been thinking about. I mean, uh, complicated although all this conversation has been, we've still been thinking about this, Martin, in in the context of a single number um, for for inflation. Uh, you as as experienced by the whole population but but we all buy different stuff so you know my inflation index might be quite different from yours um you know mine's focused on gladiator fights and beers and yours is probably focused on something much more serious um what, what, can, can you get a, a sense of how inflation affects different people differently yeah we can i mean i think that that's an important thing to bear in mind when you're you know you hear figures in the news about CPI inflation being, you know, 2%, for example, that's really reflecting the experience across the economy of the what's often referred to as the representative consumer. So it's reflecting how popular goods and services are on average across all people. But of course, we all have different spending patterns and therefore individuals or households' experience of inflation um, are likely to differ from the average and from one another. Um, and indeed, it is possible to compute household-specific measures of inflation using information on the baskets of households, and particularly if you follow the same households through time, yeah, you can use that information to construct what a given household's inflation is. 
This may differ from the aggregate, both because the household purchases different goods and services, but also um, potentially because it pays different prices compared to what the, the average household does. In the context of um, inflation in the, the grocery sector, we know that across households, there's really remarkable dispersion in households' experiences of inflation. Um, so we're talking about a difference of around two to three percentage points between someone who has relatively low experience of inflation and a household that has relatively high experience of inflation. And that's something that was true both prior to the pandemic and also during the pandemic when we had this increase in, in kind of aggregate inflation of, of 2.5%. So in fact, we've seen the entire distribution of household level inflation shifting by, by around that 2.5%. Um, you referred to, uh, so, so obviously people do face different levels of inflation and sometimes, you know, energy costs are going up faster than clothes prices or what have you, um, which might mean that those on lower incomes are facing higher inflation than those on higher incomes and vice versa. But you, you referred to um, uh, the sort of uh, the overall measure as um, reflecting the experience of the typical household, but it's not even as good as that, is it? Because the, the measure is what... Um, is, is, is what's known as a plutocratic measure, uh, as I understand it. So um, the it's actually, if the rich buy a lot of stuff, then they get a higher weight in the uh, inflation basket, don't they? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, so it means that we would expect the inflation experience of relatively um, low income or uh, low wealth households to be more different typically from the kind of this average measure than for, for richer households. So does that lead you to conclude, Ian, that, uh, that, that we need more than one measure? Um, and I think the ONS have been thinking uh, about this. Should we have a the measure we have at the moment, the CPI, plus a measure which is more representative of the average household or plus a series of measures which are representative of different kinds of households, or would that just so hopeless confusion to little benefit? Uh, well, um, I, I, personally, I think it's it's a good idea to have an you know an appropriate a measure appropriate to the purpose at hand, and to the extent that we have lots of different purposes for these things, then we need different measures. Um, certainly, in the case of inflation, a, a kind of one size fits all thing isn't really very helpful but that does come with a um, a huge explanatory cost i'm laughing slightly because i'm not the world's best explainer as, as you've just heard in the last 40 minutes or so um but you get this worry that you know if we have a, a rainbow of different inflation measures um then people will pick the one that suits them, not necessarily the most appropriate one. Um, and, you know, this notion, I think it's called, you know, inflation shopping, that you go and find the number that suits your case the best is a worry. Um, and ONS would need to explain the difference between them. Martin, uh, final thoughts. I mean, do you, do you, is, is it your view that we could do with more than one measure or is, 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 is one more than plenty as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I, I think in an ideal world, having different measures for the different purposes that these things are used for would be be great. You know, thinking about central banks targeting uh, price stability and thinking about the uprating of benefits, they're two very different purposes, and it's really two very different measures of inflation that would be appropriate for those purposes. 
but I, I, I think the uh, concerns that Ian raised are, are definitely valid. And I think we've seen that historically with the government using different inflation measures for changing tax thresholds and uprating benefits. So using a higher one for tax thresholds and a lower one for uprating benefits. Um, and I think that's an example of the danger that may happen if we have a uh, if we have more inflation measures available. Well, uh, I'm sure that if we did, then people would do exactly as you describe, and government would no doubt be the worst at it in terms of inflation shopping. We've seen them do, as you say, exactly that over over recent years. Well, um, if you came in to listen to this podcast thinking you knew about inflation, you're almost certainly leaving it uh, far more confused. Than you started, for which um, for which we all apologise. Uh, but hopefully, you've got some sense at least as to why this really is a staggeringly uh, both complex and fascinating um, area of study. Trying to understand how prices have risen and how that has affected people's standards of living, and why actually it has been particularly challenging over this last extraordinary year as uh, so many of those things that we usually buy simply haven't been available even getting one's head around uh, what might be happening or how to think about what's been happening to prices is uh, even more difficult uh, than usual so thank you ever so much to uh, martin uh, and to ian for a fascinating uh, uh, tour of the uh, price uh, uh, price measurement and uh, if you're still interested then um, they're both of the each of them has written plenty uh, on this topic both related to the current crisis and beyond if you enjoyed this episode please hit subscribe and rate us and more generally than inflation you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk stay well and we look forward to speaking to you again soon Thank you.